Can I um, just do a few little preliminary introductions? I mean, many of you will know um, the ladies who are up here. Um, but uh, on the far side, Jen. Um, Jen and her husband, James, planted the, uh, the Cardiff Vineyard four and a half years ago. Uh, they have two delightful little daughters. Um, they also, Jen and James, head up, as you were hearing earlier on, um, the Cause to Live For uh, conference and ministry. Um, they also serve on the National Leadership Group. And because Jen isn't really busy enough, she is also a GP partner in her spare time. <laughs> so that, that is Jen. Helen uh, is married to Tom. They have four daughters, one <laughs> grandson, and because they're not busy enough, they also foster teenagers. Um, <laughs> Helen, along with Tom, are associate pastors here at Trent. Um, been here for many years. And uh, amongst a whole range of responsibilities, she has pioneered and uh, heads the Archers Ministry, the Archers Project uh, here. And uh, she has recently taken up boxing. Wow. <laughs> It, 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 is, is that kickboxing or is it, it just is, boxing? It is. It's kickboxing. Yeah, it's kickboxing. I, I mean, that explains, doesn't it, why the, why, why the <laughs> staff at Trent are so well behaved. <laughs> I love it. And then Katie, Katie Rogers, is the um, kids pastor at the Belfast City uh, Vineyard. Uh, she has a, a lovely daughter. Um, she... <laughs> also serves on the uh, National Kids Task Force for the United Kingdom and Ireland. And uh, amongst some of her uh, interests and hobbies are reading and walking her dog and coffee shops and <laughs> chocolate. So, uh, so there we are. Um, do you know, one of the, the great things, I guess, about all of our lives is that we all have a story to tell, and, and none of those stories are the same. And um, we would just love to hear, first of all, a little bit about your story, how, how God got hold of you, and how he put you on a, on a path towards leadership. So, Jen, maybe we can start with you. Um, I don't think I ever really saw it as leadership, but looking back, I guess a leader is somebody, or one element of a leader is somebody who sees what needs to be changed and does something about it. So if I look back at my life, I probably always led in some way as a child and even as a teenager. And thinking back, I think one example of that would be when I was about 16, I wrote to my local MP, um, <laughs> normal thing you do when you're 16, go out to the pub and write to your MP. Um, because I used to do quite a lot of waiting for the buses in Sheffield bus station. As an exuberant future medical student, I was horrified that you were allowed to smoke in the waiting room. So on these cold winter nights when I was waiting for the bus, I used to have to go and stand outside in the freezing cold while they all sat there puffing away. So I went to somebody who could change something about that, and sure enough, three weeks later, there's this beautiful collection of no smoking signs all the way around the waiting room. And I've never actually uh, stopped writing to my MP ever since. <laughs> yeah. Don't be my MP, Nick Clegg. <laughs> um, but when I became a Christian when I was about 20 years old, I suddenly became aware of this different dynamic of leading in a church. There's functional leadership, but there's also spiritual leadership, which is all about leading people further towards God. 
And I found myself surrounded by all these Christian friends who'd been Christians the whole of their lives and knew the Bible far better than I did and knew how to pray without accidentally slipping in a naughty word, as I famously did when I first prayed out loud in small group. Helen's smiling because she was my small group leader at the time. (laughs) And I'm not going to repeat the word. Um, And even years later, after I'd been a Christian for quite a while, I did the Trent Discipleship Year, and on that year, I was actually led by two of my friends, Aid and Libby, and my husband at the time, he's still my husband, he, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, just to clarify that, he, at the time, my husband was uh, leading on pastoral staff, so I think really in comparison, I always felt rather ill-equipped as a leader in a church, but I still had this desire to change things and see things happen. And so, looking back, my, probably my first taste of leadership was this thick, absolute horrendous bomb of a leadership thing. Um, I set up this project called the Lenten Project, which hardly anybody signed up for, and I couldn't have managed worse, and eventually it had to be pulled from Trent's getting involved leaflet. Um, so not the greatest first experience. Uh, but then, um, ended up having this great experience in India. So I got the opportunity to take out well, not to take out. I went on a, a trip to India with the church. And while we were there, I got the chance to go down to this hospital that the church in India had a link with. And this hospital had this amazing vision about meeting the needs, the health needs of the local community through uh, free health care, but also this really strong sense that they wanted to shine Jesus' light out so they would pray for patients and were unashamedly mm. Christian. But the shame about this was that they couldn't find any Christian doctors to work there. And I thought, this is terrible. We come from a huge church back in the UK, full of health professionals. I'm sure that God might just speak to somebody if we took out a team to go out and just support that hospital, even if it was for a short period of time. So I went back and I spoke to Helen's husband, actually, Tom, and just said, this is what I want to do. Would that be okay? And he said, yes, let's bring this other lady with you who's had a lot more experience in leading mission trips. And I was hugely relieved by that. Um, And so we got this team together who actually happened to all be women um, who were all involved in health in different ways and went back out to India. And as some of you will know, on that trip was Mary and Kat, who God spoke to very clearly about the children of India. And so eventually when they eventually went back out to India, Their vision was so huge, way bigger than mine, um, that it spilled out of that hospital almost immediately, and they now love this incredible um, compassion ministry, Love the One, in India. Mm. So a way more positive experience. And I think in terms of growing as a leader on that, it was really significant that I was supported by this lady, Sue, who, who was so experienced as a leader, and I was totally inexperienced. But she kept on pushing me forwards along the, almost like a a mother bird, pushing me along a branch until eventually I fell off and started (laughs) flying. Um, Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess as a leader, I've probably always led functionally, but spiritually that's more been something that I've grown into as I've grown into God more. Um, Because you can't take somebody where you've not been or where you're not willing to go, i.e. you've either been there and you're showing somebody the direction to go, or you long to be there and you take someone with you on the journey. Mm. So. Brilliant. Helen. Yeah, for me, I was brought up in a, what I would class as quite a traditional Christian upbringing. And I remember growing up, it all felt about rules of what as a Christian you shouldn't do and you mustn't do. But I did encounter Jesus probably about the age of seven and had a really quite profound encounter of him. 
But I have to say, I didn't enjoy the trappings or kind of, uh, of church. I didn't enjoy that side of it. Especially as one of the rules was we had to go to church every week. I was often dragged out of bed to do that. So I left home at 17 to go off to do my nurse training. And I thought, now I'm going to find my own way. And uh, I managed <coughs> to kind of lose church. That felt a good thing. But I couldn't lose God because I'd experienced him and I just knew he was so real. So off I go to do my nursing. I lacked any confidence and any direction at all. I had no idea what my life was going to be about. I met and married Tom. We had a bit of a whirlwind romance and got kind of met and married within about three or four months uh, at 19. And um, after getting married within, again, a few months, we had the opportunity to go and live and run a house for a number of homeless people, which was a crazy thing to do, really, just into marriage and not knowing each other very well. <laughs> and actually, it was at this homeless place we met John and Debbie, although they weren't the homeless people, um, just, to, just to reassure you. <laughs> that, that would be a great story. Um, so we're, we're running this house for, for homeless people. It's like absolutely full on. Uh, I'm working full time as a nurse. But, you know, we were activists. So we were passionate about, about God, even though we're on the, the edge of church. But um, I never used the word or saw myself as a leader. But we got on with what needed to be done and just you know, threw ourselves into that. And also, um, at that time, I very much thought any um, calling or leadership, it would only be realized through Tom. So I kind of stuck close to him thinking he's the one that's going to get all of that and I'll kind of tag along, which I was actually very, very happy to do. A few years later, we'd kind of settled down a bit more. We got three of our, our daughters. And um, God spoke very clearly to Tom through a sequence of dreams, actually, about being called to ministry. We were involved in the Anglican Church at that time. And I remember just feeling so excited and resonating with this call. Secretly felt it was as much about me as about him. But kind of back then, as a woman, you weren't, well, I wasn't involved in any of the process. But I was in, this, in the sense that I emotionally connected with it spiritually. I was like, God, this is it. This is it. At last we know what our life's going to be about. And I love the idea of being a vicar's wife, although I had no idea what that would entail. I thought it was flower arranging for some reason, um, <laughs> which I've never done and wouldn't know how to do. But anyway, I was excited. And it was a two-year intensive process, and we just threw ourselves into it. And after that two years, uh, we got the kind of answer, and it was a no. And it wasn't just a no, not now. It was a no, you are not right for ministry, you won't fit, um, never darken the door again to try this. And I have to say, it was a huge blow to us. But about the same time, Tom's sister died. She was young, leaving a young baby. Mm. I had a miscarriage. And it was like a whole season of just what felt like complete loss of us having to let go. And I remember standing at my kitchen window where I lived at the time and just saying, I don't understand. I'm completely confused. But we want to do anything. We'll go anywhere. Mm. And I remember just sensing God say, um, if you want to know what it means to serve me, go and live with the poor. And it wasn't what I expected to hear. I knew we had to do it. And poor old Tom, who was reeling from the whole uh, process we'd just been through. And I went, God spoke, we've got to live with the poor. And he's like, I don't hear from God, whatever. Um, so I kind of went, yes. And anyway, that's a story in itself, how we ended up living on quite a, a rough estate on this particular street. But interestingly, when we moved to the, the street, I thought it was going to be all about what we were going to do again, you know. But actually, it was all about us letting go, dying, surrendering, finding a true identity in God, probably for the first time ever, and we really encountered Jesus there. And we were living on this street full of broken people. But we were broken too and actually felt so at home. 
And in that time, we learned what it meant to really love and serve our little local church with no positional status. We um, loved the street we lived on, and we actually felt very content. And then completely out of the blue, we got a phone call from John and Debbie, and they said, we're coming back to Nottingham. We're going to plant a church. So I remember them coming over, because it would be nice to invite them over, and sitting around the kitchen table over pasta bake, and, um, <laughs> and them just sharing their vision and passion for what they wanted to do and, and you know, in coming back. And I remember then just feeling this stirring and awakening that I'd never felt before. And we decided to join them. God just made it very clear we needed to. It was terrifying because we didn't know how to, well, we didn't know about Vineyard, how it worked, what it was about. So it was jumping completely into the unknown. But for me, it was such a beginning of like a door opening of John and Debbie. And I, I still to this day don't know what they saw because I certainly saw nothing in myself. We'd been discounted as far as I was concerned. And they believed in me. They listened to me. They said, asked what I thought about things and what was on my heart. And it was like something began to grow and awaken in me. They valued me. They, they um, got me involved in stuff, even though I was terrified. And, and this is so, and I couldn't even pray out loud. I was a bit of a pathetic um, morsel, really. But anyway, they saw something. Um, and I began to come out of this hiding place I'd lived for years behind Tom and being a mother and a nurse. And I remember just one defining moment for me, going to my first um, NLC conference at Bournemouth back then. And I remember going to a seminar that Eleanor and Debbie were leading. And I remember walking into the room and watching these two women that were clearly called, anointed, and passionate about what they were doing. And I just sat there, and I, something inside me, I just said, yes, God, yes, yes, whatever it is, yes. And I remember I had such an amazing power encounter of God, I think shot from one side of the room to the other, which was quite dramatic, but it was a real defining moment for me. Mm. <laughs> and Katie? Okay. Well, I feel like I have always had a desire to lead on some level, although generally when I was younger that did not include church. So I went to Cambridge to do my teacher training with um, the sole aim of becoming a principal as soon as possible. I'd worked out that I could do that by the age of 28. And then I was going to stop that as soon as possible also and try and somehow run an educational library board and move into politics. So I had it all planned out. Um, and it didn't involve leading in church at all. And we'd started going to the vineyard in Belfast. It was really small back then, only about 40 people. And as a teacher at the time, I did not want to do children's ministry on a Sunday. I just felt like that I worked with kids all week. And that on a Sunday, I wanted to do something different. And at that point, Nobody could have convinced me otherwise. I'm kind of stubborn. And I think what it was, was that I had in my head a perception of what Sunday school was like. And I just really didn't want to go there because as far as I was concerned, growing up in it was bad enough without continuing it on into adulthood. And I began my career as a special needs teacher and I absolutely loved my job. I must have been really annoying. I used to arrive and work every morning with a really big smile on my face just because I got there. And I remember being really worried because I just thought you shouldn't have this amount of job satisfaction in your 20s. <laughs> and, you know, I just loved work. But anyway, one, one week I was driving to work and I started listening to some um, tapes at the time by Jackie Pullinger. And she was talking about working with the poor in Hong Kong. And my heart just started to break that week, and I just started to pray and ask God to show me the poor who lived around me. And that Sunday, I arrived at church and sat down to a sermon um, that was actually on a really similar thing, on Jesus' heart for the poor. And I prayed that same prayer again. Now, I was on coffee that morning, 
And the setup was that we were in a little community center, so there was a big hall that the grown-ups were in, and there was another little hall, and it kind of doubled up as where the children went and where the coffee was served after the service. So as the service was ending, I popped down to that room to start making the coffee. And when I got there, there were a few second-hand toys scattered across the floor, um, which had seen better days, a few scribbled upon colour and in pictures, some broken crayons that I'd started to help pick up, and a really frazzled looking kids leader and a parent who were just looking with their watches at their watches with sheer relief that I had arrived because when the person came to make the coffee, that meant the service was over, and they were just telepathically willing the parents to come and get your children. <laughs> and right there and then, in that moment, the Lord just spoke to me, and I just heard him say really clearly in my heart, here are the poor, Katie. And, you know, just look at them, these little ones there, the poor that you're looking for. And I was completely undone, because, you see, they weren't poor in the material sense, obviously, but spiritually they were. And no one seemed to have realized, least of all me, and I had been in that church week after week after week, and you see, what had happened in every church that I'd ever been part of until that point was that there was a culture where care of children had become a burden to the church. And when I was a child in church, I grew up in church. And I actually knew that we were a burden because nobody ever spoke that out to us verbally, but it was an unspoken message that was served up week after mm. week after week. Our leaders were often unenthusiastic, often new Christians or not Christians at all. And people who could maybe play a tune in the piano, but not well enough to play for the <coughs> adults, so they got sent to the children's rooms. Um, yeah, and so often in our churches, the adults just get the best room, the best worship leaders, the best equipment, the best speakers, the most comfortable chairs, the most engaging teaching, and the children can just often get whatever is left over, really. And it was just that realization that the children are so often the poor in our churches that makes me feel really, really heartbroken. So, yeah, I guess that, that was the start of my journey towards starting to lead um, in kids' ministry. And until that mm. point, I had always felt that if I served in kids' ministry, then I'd miss church. Do you know, I still get people say, oh, I miss church this morning because I was in with the kids. And God just really gently showed me that if I felt that by doing children's ministry that I had missed church, that I had to face the reality that every single child in the building had also missed church that morning. And I just felt absolutely compelled to do something about that. And just this deep longing that God started to build in me um, that children would have as good an experience of church as the grown-ups and that we could equip them just to do the things of the kingdom that nobody in the building would miss church. Because you see, when I was a child, I had everything I could possibly want except for one thing, and that is that I did not know the love of Jesus. And I just know that we have to communicate the real person of Jesus to our children so that we don't have a stagnant kids' ministry tacked on to the end of a really vibrant church, but instead that we have a God with radical ideas, and that includes everyone, the children. Mm. So. <laughs> so great. <laughs> <laughs> so, someone has said that um, the, the outworking of vision is um, find, just finding what God wants you to do and then doing it with all of your heart. And we're just 
I'd love to just ask you a, a, a bit more about um, the vision that God has been giving you. Maybe, Helen, coming to you first, just, just, just to tell us a little bit about that, how it's, you know, how it's been forming and, and, and what it looks like for you in, in, in your context. Yeah. Well, for me, as I said, once I got involved in the vineyard, I just loved it and the expression, at last I'd come home, that many people do use. But I began to catch the vision of what the true impact that church could have and just seeing the kingdom in action. And I always dreamed of it, but never kind of saw it as a reality. And I couldn't get enough. So I just had this insatiable appetite to get involved in anything and everything. I wanted to learn. I wanted to serve. I wanted to grow. And I didn't care how much time or energy I put into it. And for me, although I'd been in, involved with stuff with the poor in many different ways, it had always operated outside of the church. And looking back, it was very much in, in my own strength, really. So suddenly, to be in a church where it was a priority to take Jesus out there to sort of to the last of the lost, it was just incredible. But not only that, it was central to the vision of this church. And, you know, for John and Debbie, that's the first thing they talked to Tom and I about, is how can we get stuff going with the poor? And um, for me, the little street we were living on at that time, suddenly we, we got a couple of small groups going. And the very thing Eleanor was talking about the other day, we were just saturating our street with, with giving out flower, uh, flower, flowers, cleaning stairwells, cutting hedges, um, speaking to people about Jesus, praying for people, people getting set free, people being healed. It was an incredible couple of years of just, say, seeing the kingdom in action. And... Um, and looking back again, I thought, this is what I've been preparing for. This is what God had been bringing us to. And just completely went for it. And in a way, it was inconvenient at the time the church started. I'd got my four daughters, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 3-month-old. And I was working nights um, nursing. <laughs> so it was quite a struggle to juggle uh, it all. But then there came a point where God began to speak to me, you know, would you lay down your career? thought, no, of course I can't. You know, I've been working for this for years. And we just moved, actually, and we just doubled our mortgage. And I thought, oh, the money, the identity. And I really grappled with God, probably for about six months. And, and then in the end, I thought, I've got to be obedient. I've just got to, you know, die to this as well and just let it go. And as soon as I, I resigned, I just felt this incredible sense of peace that God was in this. And it was right just to lay this down. Unto what, I had no idea. And then, of course, surprise, surprise, about literally three months later, I remember Tom coming home and saying, I've just been to visit this amazing place. I think it's got a bit of potential. Um, will you come and have a look at it? So I was like, oh, Tom, not another crazy idea, because he's always got one on the go. And um, <laughs> anyone who knows him. Anyway, so I went along. I agreed, because I've got a bit of time on my hands. Went along and had a look. And it was the arches, the, the venue that we've, we've had. Obviously, we've moved now. But... And I remember walking in, and it was cold and dark and smelly and disgusting, completely derelict building. But I just had this complete excitement, and it's like, I could see it. I could see it just warm and welcoming and full of people and, and giving stuff out. And it's just like I saw what it could be, not what it was. I'd never had an experience like that before. Um, Interesting, so we went to John and Debbie, and I just said, oh, I've got it on my heart, I'd love to do something. And they were like, well, that's interesting, we were hoping to get something going now, so feel free to get on with it. So I was given a couple of days a week to start something. Interestingly, when I got the keys and went back with this, you know, authority to get on with it, I walked in and felt completely depressed and overwhelmed. I thought, what a disgusting building, it's got no potential at all. Um, but actually, for me, the biggest step for me, I suddenly thought, I've, I've got to, I'm going to be leading something in my own right. And I always thought it was all about, which I was completely happy with, just supporting Tom, serving Tom. You know, my husband, really happy with that. And it's like God 
had just been drawing me out and saying, no, no, I want you to, I'm giving you this sort of mantle of leading. And suddenly I had to be building teams and raising up leaders and releasing vision. And I think it's easy now to look at the arches as it is and think, oh, well, you know, it's all amazing or whatever. But it was completely terrifying. It was a very small start. It was a slow beginning. You know, we had a few good people. We did have a bit of vision, but we had a huge dream. And um, I have been in complete awe of what God has established over the past uh, nearly 12 years the arches has been going. Firstly, to have someone like me involved at all in leading any of it is incredible. But just to see the team that he's gathered, mm. um, you know, hundreds of volunteers now involved. We see thousands of people every year as clients who come who are vulnerable and in need, and we can just give something. Um, the influence we've now been able to have in the city is just incredible opportunity of, you know, well over 100 organizations that refer to us. But for me, the most exciting thing is that we're beginning to see people meet and encounter Jesus <coughs> and seeing lives transformed. Mm. Jen, for, for you, part, part of your vision with James is, is obviously church planting. Um, t tell us a bit about the vision that God's been stirring in, in you. Um, so for me, vision wasn't really something that came to me first. In fact, four days before James proposed to me, ever so unromantically, may I add, on my bedroom <laughs> floor, no ring, no rose, not even a ticket to Paris. Um, he sat me down, so the four days before that. But big letdown. <laughs> he, uh, no, it wasn't that bad. It was. Um, he, uh, he sat me down and just told me that God had spoken yet again about church planting. And at the time, I sort of hoped that it might be something that he would eventually grow out of. Because, because church planting for me wasn't exactly something that I saw myself doing. It wasn't on my top ten things I've listed to do. Be a doctor, have children, travel abroad. Oh, church plants. No, not at all. Um, and so it became, though, year for years, something that we kept coming back to. And so rather than it being something that happened to us both at the same time, rather than it was something that God awoke in me through imparting it to James first. Um, so I started off feeling like my orders had been given. I wasn't excited. I wasn't even vision-filled. Um, and I guess that when I accepted James's hand in marriage, rather reluctantly without the ring, um, <laughs> I was also accepting a call to church planting. And that's how it initially started. This is what the Lord has got for me, and I'm going to faithfully obey it. And people often think that the call to church plant happens, and then you go off and do that. But in my experience, it was very different. Mm. So I'll just unpack that. We went through this, well, I particularly think I went through this time of preparation. And so part of that for me was deciding to take a, a break from medicine. I'd qualified as a doctor two years previously and was starting my training to be a GP. Um, and I felt that if I was going to learn about church, what better way than to serve from the bottom upwards? So I took a year out of um, my training to do the Trent Vineyard Discipleship Year. Really, as well, it was an opportunity for me to take a step back, as medicine I'd found had become quite consuming at times, into not just in my time, but my energy and, and even my sleep. So <laughs> when you're tired, it's difficult to focus on doing much. Um, I asked James to download on everything that he'd done at church. He was working on pastoral staff at this time. 
conversations he'd had, why he'd made certain decisions, why other people had made certain decisions. Every time I got a chance to sit in on pastoral staff meetings, I would sit there just thinking, I am a sponge. I need to learn. I need to hear why they're doing that. Why are they speaking that way? Look at how they're waiting and before actually speaking. That's really good, good thing. Because um, <laughs> I'm much more of a... <laughs> um, I started being way more outward at work, thinking if we're going to go and church plant, I need to be really easily able to talk about Jesus and invite people to things. And if I can't do it now, we certainly won't be able to do it when we go to Cardiff. I didn't know it was Cardiff at the time, but go to church plant. (laughs) I continued to fast and pray and be accountable with a great friend of mine who I'm actually still accountable with through the joys of Skype. I started to write down all the prophecies and parts of the story that God had given us which eventually led us to Cardiff. Um, So that's how it started, but I guess the actual vision and call to church planting came at New Wine in summer of 2006. Sounds really romantic, doesn't it? Summer of 2006. (laughs) It wasn't at all. Um, And I went up for ministry, and Steve Nicholson and Juliet Barber, always a dangerous combination, uh, they came up to pray for me. and, And it was during that time of ministry where rather than it being something that I could see or any words that were sort of spoken over me, more it was like God's heart coming into mine and his burden for the lost being set upon me. And that's when I knew what it was all about, why church planting, mm. because it's the best way to reach the lost. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Jane, can, can I also just ask you, um, that, that sort of church planting is, is, is one thing, um, but you also have, you know, very much a vision which is God has given you for the for the twenties and thirties, cause to live for, and just um, what what the what the sort of the passion is there, what the what 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 you see the challenges are, what 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 sort of is really motivating you in terms of wanting to be a part of that, reaching that generation or in, in alongside that generation. I think it's just when you're in this generation, it, there are so many pulls on your time. There's influ- there's, I mean, I talked about it a little bit mm. earlier in mm. terms of family. Oh, my gosh, that can be so all-consuming, mm. especially if you've got challenging toddler, as I have. Um, and time, you sort of, often a lot of women are juggling multiple things, and men, actually. So when you're sort of trying to do ministry and you've got, young children and you're doing work and it's so easy to to just have no headspace even mm. for God let alone church and mm. I think what we partly what we want to see is that people are so captivated by God that the other distractions don't have as much space to come in yeah. um, and so really it's just it's not just that it's not just sort of giving people an opportunity to really fall into God and, and keep on being in love with God through everything. And that's not just the 30s, but it's the 20s as well. I mean, any student or 20 will know how many influences there are pulling them away mm. from mm. God. And Rich talked about it earlier in terms of media and, and like Facebook. What an addiction that can become. I just think how many people just get addicted and sucked in into this sort of fake way of living that is all about the person you want to create rather than the person that you actually are. So, sorry, that's a small rant for me. No, and it's yeah, not no. all in my we, we want to hear the rants. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's, we are so heavily influenced by 
everything around us, I think more than ever. And, and I just feel that we just need to keep on poking God into people's radars and going, he's significant, he's important, come on. Yeah. Don't you realize that this adventure is far better than all the other adventures? Mm -hmm. Sitting in front of your computer screen going, I'm really fun today. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. oh, I've just eaten a pie. Jolly home. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm like, oh, what a waste. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> Small pet hate of mine. Uh. Um, uh. Yeah, and, and I think it's just trying to get people on their radar that this is for them as well, that leading and being significant in the kingdom isn't just for people whose kids have left home, that it starts now. It starts in your 20s. It starts, well, you know, it starts whenever you pick up the mantle. Um, so I think it's just encouraging people to be the people who are going to put one step in front of the other and see the kingdom be advanced in whatever stage of life they're at. And mm. so that's, that's sort of part of the vision for Cause. Mm. And, and Jen, just coming back to, um, the, I, I suppose, the church planting and the leadership, but, but also with, with the Cause to Live For thing, I would imagine, being a GP and a practice and stuff, there's a certain amount of um, strategic thinking that's a part of your professional life uh, as well. Has that, has that also been a combination of the sort of contribution you bring to, to your call to leadership? Yes, so <clears throat> it's been really, it's really interesting actually, because um, definitely, because I'm a partner in my practice and I, you know, God really gave such a God-ordained job. It's, and you always think that God-ordained jobs are gonna be great, don't you? But I <laughs> managed to land myself with a bit of a mess of a practice. Um, and I was like, God, thought it was supposed to be really easy and good and fit in with church really well and and I guess it does in that I've had to sort of be part of re-engineering this practice in my spare time um, so yeah and I think just going back to that earlier question really it was it was actually going to church plan that I realized where my strengths and leadership actually lay in that I'm actually mm. quite a consequences person I see things before they happen and I have quite strong gut instincts about direction and decisions that we have to make um, if anyone's read that book by Bill Hybels, he talks about the different types of leaders in there. And I found that so releasing because I was like, oh, I'm a strategic leader. I can be. I don't have to be a pastor who, who like, sits there and offers tissues and walks people through stuff because I'm rubbish at that. But I am. I'm just not good at that sort of thing. <laughs> I know. But what I do find... What I find actually quite life-giving is being able to think through a problem and work out what is the best direction to take and think through the consequences of big picture decisions. And, and I love that. And mm. so I've done a little bit of that with work, but particularly and increasingly my role in the church has been that sort of strategic role, but also in, in a prophetic way as well. I think in the last year, I've, um, God's really woken me up in terms of a leader. I felt him say to me, when are you going to stop hiding behind your husband and your motherhood and actually start leading? And, mm -hmm. and I think James has been rather grateful to God ever since because I suspect I was a terrible backseat driver. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> and so, yeah, uh, you know, just this prophetic thing, he sort of just was stirring that. And not, not just even in a sort of giving personal prophetic words, but more prophetically directing the church. Um, and that's something that I've had to purposefully choose to step out in and lean into. Because it's funny, isn't it, when, um, when God speaks to you about developing an area of your life or your leadership or even the church, he doesn't just do it for you, does he? He, 
He often points you in the right direction, but you always, always, always have to step into it intentionally yourself. Mm. So just a really quick example. I, yeah. had this, I had this dream that came out of nowhere, and I sort of turned to James that morning. I was like, I've had this really amazing dream where our church was just full of God, and people were just desperate for him, and all these people were like streaming off the streets to give their lives to Jesus, and people were being healed, and I was like, isn't that amazing? And then ever since I'd had that dream, I just felt really dissatisfied when I looked at the church, almost like God had given me this picture of what it could be, and in comparison, it just, although I love, I love the church, and I loved the church at the time, it was almost like this, there is more to this than you see, there is more to this that could be, um, and so we sort of weighed the dream for a little while, but deep down I knew it was from God because of course that's what God wants to see in every church. That's what we want to see, what we long to see. Mm. And so with everything in leadership, when you want to see anything change, you have to start looking at yourself. And so I looked at how I was leading and leaning into God. I asked him to awaken more passion in me for him, more shamelessness for him more vulnerability in my leadership, and would he open the gates of heaven? And while I feel, you know, I look at the church, and we haven't had revival down there in Cardiff, but the spiritual temperature has definitely gone up a few degrees, mm. which I'm so excited for. And there's more to come, you know? We're yeah. not at that dream yet. Yeah, mm. um, yeah. and so I guess sort of in terms of leading... For me, it's rather than a specific ministry, it's been more like I culturally shape the church directionally and prophetically, which is a bit more difficult to measure. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Um, Katie, um, we, we know that God has given you passion and vision for kids. So t tell us a little bit about how that um, you know, started and grew um, in, in Belfast, where you are. Okay. Um, well... It sounds very audacious to say, but I felt that the vision that God had given me was to see the face of kids ministry completely transformed in Ireland, UK and beyond. And, do you know, <laughs> that's massive. <laughs> but, I mean, just last week, um, we were meeting as a staff and Harmony had said, but, but faith is audacious. And, do you know, it is. So that, that was where the vision started. And I just remember um, God showing me what church would look like if our children really hungered after Jesus and knew him intimately and heard his prophetic voice and could confidently pray for healing, pray for their friends, worship him as a way of life. And I just felt that God showed me that if our children weren't living like this, then our churches were only running on a half power because only half of the body was fully functioning and that it wasn't okay for just the adults to carry forward the vision of the church. And I was at a conference a good few years ago now, and one of the women that was speaking there um, shared a picture that God had given her. And in this picture, she saw a body, and the leg had been cut off and thrown into an adjoining room. And as the leg began to just shrivel up and die, then the very lifeblood began to actually drain out of the rest of the body as well. And it became weak, and it was disabled, and it couldn't function the way God had planned for it to. And I guess that's been part of the vision, that the reality of the situation is that you put the children out of the way in another room and forget about them and don't provide for them, then actually not just the children suffer, but the whole rest of the church becomes weakened and cannot function within its full potential. So if we don't fully include our children, we're actually going to lose a generation. And, you know, we're, what, about 20 years old here now in the UK? Um, and, 
you know, our children are really hungry for the supernatural, and I've said this before in talks I've done, but I'd read some statistic about the number of children who had written to J.K. Rowling to find out if actually there was a Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry that they could go to. <laughs> and it was just off the scale, the number of children that had written these letters. And it just showed me that there's just this massive, deep, deep hunger for the supernatural in our children. And if our kids get bored and don't find Jesus and meet the Holy Spirit in our churches, then they're just going to go off somewhere else where they can meet that and find all those things. And just imagine that if we could take our 20-year legacy and hand it to our kids and not have them have to start from scratch like we have, but actually to springboard off what we've done and what we've known, I just feel like that we would see a harvest beyond our wildest dreams. If our kids could do, reach further and do more than we've ever, ever done, then that's how we're going to drive this movement in, into the future and move things forward. Mm. And that's how we're going to see things change locally, nationally, globally. That's how we're going to see businesses transformed, our cities transformed, schools. And we've just got to do this thing and not lose a generation. And I guess for us as a church, it did start really small. So... On the first Sunday, Andy had brought me on staff. It was a massive, massive risk for him because they could neither afford to pay my salary. Um, it probably would have put the church under in a couple of months if, if things didn't change. And we only had six children, and yet he'd paid me w to come on staff. Was that, was that six? Six. Six children? Six. Gosh, that, that's hiring for growth, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that. Six. <laughs> We six. only had six, okay. but we had a vision for it. It was always about a lot more than six, do you know? Um, and I think that's been the heart of it, because now we maybe have around 100 children and about 80 to 90 kids leaders. And I can honestly say that we have the exact same heart for planning what we did with six as we did with 60, as we will have for 600. It's just never changed. And I've always been really passionate about writing, writing curriculum for children. And we started off trying to write kids' curriculum that would teach them core vineyard values. So just to articulate what is it that makes us a vineyard and bring that to the children. So things like worship, um, that they would learn about um, power ministry, praying for healing, all those things that are really dis the distinctive flavor of the vineyard that we take it to the children. Um, and in fact, some of that curriculum has been developed a bit and it's on the website if anyone is interested in using that. And the next thing that we did really early on was that we realized that we had to call things what we want them to be. And in saying that, what I mean is this, in order to change a culture, we had to change how we talked about our children in the church. And as a church, we decided that we would never use the term kids work again. And we call it kids ministry because you see, we do not have prayer work, worship work, compassion work. Um, <laughs> We call them all ministries, and yet we so often call our kids ministries work. And what that does is that it actually creates a culture mm. where children are perceived as a burden to the church. And when I think I work at something rather than that it's a ministry, it changes how I behave within mm. that and mm. how I actually serve on a Sunday morning. And the other thing we did is we stopped calling our leaders kids workers because we don't want workers. Our kids need pastors and leaders and teachers, mm. and we're mm. going to call them what we want them to be. And that one tiny simple thing um, changed our church culture very radically mm. in the early days, and I cannot recommend it enough. Um, and the, the final thing that I really want to say that, that we did, we've really focused on 
over the past few years especially um, is preschoolers. Do not forget your preschoolers. Um, there are a lot of books out there that talk about the 414 window and um, that this is the age that children are most likely to encounter Jesus. But actually, while that is true, a child's worldview is formed by the time that they are four. And we want that worldview to be a Christ-centered one. So we wanted to invest in our children from babies up, from before they were born. And I guess working on the basis that John the Baptist slept in his mother's womb in response to Jesus, and he wasn't even born yet. Can you imagine the potential in our baby room? We want to see our babies responding to the Holy Spirit every week, that they could leap in response to his presence and, and learn to be in worship and respond to him. And I once heard someone say, that if you are looking, this is for someone who's looking for a new church, if you are looking for a church that is strong on pastoral care, check out what they are doing with their babies. Mm. And actually, when you think that through, it's very true, because babies are small, they can't talk, they can't give money, they can't serve in a team. And so you see, if you see a church that does preschool ministry really, really well, and if you become that church, actually that value, that, that value will permeate your whole entire church. And you can be quite certain that pastoral care will be a very high priority for everyone of any age. Mm. So, yeah. okay? and, and fantastic. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I know, Katie, just recently there's been, um, you, you've taken a whole bunch of kids to Stormont. There's been a storming of Stormont. T tell us a little, just, just tell us a little bit about this, and okay. I think there might even be a, a video clip, I isn't there? I think so, yeah. Well, um, <coughs> over a year ago now, I had a dream one night, and in that dream I saw the children standing on the steps of Parliament buildings at Stormont. Um, and they were praying, and in the dream, God started speaking to me about the children in the temple steps in Matthew 21. So that week then, we had a task force meeting with Nigel and Joe, and I'd heard some stories of um, some of the other leaders there who'd taken children to Westminster to pray, and I just felt in the moment God say, you need to do this, you need to fill Stormont with kids who can worship um, and praise him. And, you know, in Matthew 21, when Jesus, that's when he talks famously, you know, about... Um, from the lips of children you have ordained praise. Um, that's from Psalm 8. And the, in my Bible, I was just reading through Psalm 8 and what actually um, God says that um, kids' praise can actually do and the power in it. And in the commentary of that verse, it said this. It said, The mighty God, whose glory is displayed across the face of the heavens, appoints and evokes the praise of little children to silence the dark powers arrayed against him. And that is actually what kids' praise does, um, that it actually is spiritual warfare, and that is why the devil hates it, and that is why he wants to deprive our kids' rooms of gifted worship leaders, because mm. there is so much power. So... Anyway, we decided to get our children um, to go to Stormont and our, week, our church, we'd had a week of prayer and fasting and the whole church prayed that we'd, try, we'd meet someone and make contacts and find a way in. So basically, um, God just opened up door after door and on the 12th of January, we managed to fill Stormont with our kids praying for our nation. And actually that weekend, things haven't been wonderful in Northern Ireland. And that particular weekend, Things were probably more crazy than they've been any other weekend with roadblocks and different things happening and a lot of protesting. And while that was happening, our kids were in Sturmont 
praying for peace in the nation and they stood in the steps of Stormont and they declared prosperity for businesses and joy across our nation and they blew bubbles as a symbol of joy spreading out across the nation and actually it was in such stark contrast that it actually ended up on the Tea Time News. Hey, should we play, should, yeah. should we play, the, play the video? It's, um, it, it's one thing to start as a leader. It's another thing, I think, to, you know, keep developing. Mm. And Helen, t tell us a little bit about, um, do you know, what you've learned about growing. I mean, you know, how it, how it continues on as a leader. Yeah. Well, I think, um, personally, I've found that the way I've grown the most is being stretched, um, facing challenges, difficulties, and pain, actually. We've got a big sign in the gym that I go to, and it says, Forge Through Pain. Mm. And, um, and it's true in a physical sense. If you want to get fitter, you have to go through some pain barriers uh, to be able to do that. You know, no pain, no gain. And actually, it's always satisfying after you've gone through those, those things. And for me, I think I've, I firstly had to really grow through learning to be patient. Um, for those of you that kind of, you know, come alongside the poor and work with, with the poor, it can be, it, it's, it takes a long time. Uh, it's often three steps forward, you know, two steps back. And my longing is to see lives transformed, people set free from addictions, um, for, for, for the, the people on the edge to meet Jesus. I just long for that. And yet it, it has taken a lot of time. It's only been in the last few years that we're beginning to see that happen. And, um, and that's been quite a challenge. But I've learned just to be patient, to keep going, to be consistent in what we do over years. And, um, and we are beginning to see the fruit of that. I've also really personally go, grown, as the church has been going, what, 16 years now, just through um, constant change, which is, um, it's not always easy as things rapidly grow. And I realize God's more concerned with my character than my comfort. And for me, I've had to grow through letting go. Uh, to let more people in, to see ministries go, to let go of things, to raise other leaders, to take on the very things that maybe I initially was passionate about, would love to be doing, and to keep stepping back, stepping back to allow others to flourish. Mm. And that can be difficult. 
I've had to learn to be secure in who I am and what God's called me to do. Although I often look around and think, oh, but they do such a much better job, and why aren't they doing that rather than me, you know, because they'd be brilliant. But I've had to learn that I cannot compare myself to others. I mean, I do, but I've, I'm learning to grow in that, of trying not to. Um, I think also a massive learning curve for me and, and a growth curve has been being committed to stay. And... Um, I'm completely passionate about church planting, and that's what we are as a movement. And I hope that Tom and I, as we serve at Trent, will be releasing loads of church plants mm. and, and fanning those into flame. But I think for me, it's been a real growth to say I'm committed and choosing to stay. And that's what God's spoken to us about. And believe you me, there's been times I've been on the edge of thinking, I want to escape. I could go, we, we perhaps could go and do a church. It would be all right at it, you know, to kind of get away. But the, the, the growth for me as I've... Um, just chosen to put deep roots down to forge um, relationships, particularly with John and Debbie and our senior leadership team. I think the, the power in that um, has allowed the church to mm. grow and be strong. Um, hopefully we continue to be a support to John and Debbie. And I think there's a lot of, a lot's come out of that. I think the church has seen the commitment of, of a, a staying team together. And, um, and yet there's been, had to be personal growth in that. And for me also, I've just grown through just realizing more and more my dependence on God. The more I go on, the, the, I realize the less I know and the less equipped in many ways. But just how I'm just completely dependent on him and just how I'm, I'm learning through keeping my relationship with Jesus really simple. Mm. Keeping going back to kind of the basics and the passion he's put in my heart and just to keep that kind of focus of serving and um, yeah, doing the things he's asked, asked me to do. Mm. And, and also finally, you know, I think the journey for me, there's been lots of personal struggles with um, family stuff and it's been hard and I think the enemy has been very clever at wanting just to kind of take hold of me and undermine me and try and disqualify me and try and take me out many times. Mm. And been so grateful for, you know, John and Debbie who've looked me in the eye many times and said, you roll with the punches, you carry on, you keep going, you can do it. And that belief has just kept me going when the enemy would quite happily have um, picked me off. Mm. Jen, what, what about for you, your sort of growth, growth lessons? Um, so I think probably particularly two things, and I think Katie's going to talk a bit about pain. <laughs> um, so I won't mention that, although I would say actually personally the most significant thing for me in terms of growth has been through going through a significant amount of pain. Um, but I would say as well, one of the things that I think personally that we need to do in order to grow is ask each other the hard questions. Because I think we live in a society that encourages us to over-flatter one another and to say far too often what we want to hear or what, what we think the other person wants to hear want, rather than what they actually need to hear which is the opposite of actually what Jesus did when he regularly spoke the truth, but always in love. And I know there's some teachers out there on leadership who would encourage us just to work only on our strengths, but I just don't agree. Because I think that God calls us to be all that we're called to be, and that includes coming face to face sometimes with some uncomfortable truths, which I guess most of us who are married will probably end up <laughs> facing on a regular basis. Or is that just James? <laughs> 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 Sorry. It is true, though. <laughs> Don't be married to a strong woman with opinions. Um, and I think, I do think, honestly, that many, for, far too few people grow or they hit their leadership ceiling because nobody's ever told them the truth. 
or, or they've ever actually gone, can you tell me what you actually see in me? Can you tell me the things that you see in me that I don't see, that I need to see, because I'm never going to go to there unless you tell me those things. So mm. I just really would encourage people to build up a network of people that you trust, and I think that's really important. You've got to be able to trust them, because saying hard things to people when there isn't a level of trust or love there is is just difficult, both sides. So building relationships with people that you trust and who you're going to regularly invite them to speak the truth to you in love. Um, but also building up a network of people who are going to inspire you, who are a little bit further down on the line than you. So I talked a little bit earlier about um, taking people with you or going on the journey with people. And, you know, there's always further on the journey, no matter how you... I mean, we're just at the very beginning, James and I, in leadership, and there's so many more people in this room who are way further ahead of us. And, and so we try and grab them at any opportunity, really. So, for example, we had Calls to Live For back in October, and we had Alan Scott speaking, and it was just... we. James and I purposefully chose to go pick him up from the airport. Um, and so we had this precious half hour around the M25, where it's not the most romantic and, and wonderful, inspiring of venues. But, you know, they have a church that is known for passion for God, hunger for God, outworking of the miracles of the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, that's something that we felt that we really wanted to press into. So why not pick him up from the airport and grill him for half an hour? <laughs> he couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> I was driving. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just grab. And I think as well, isn't that the purpose of these sort of gatherings? This is why we long to gather as a people, isn't it? To network, to, to build relationships, to grab people who are a little bit further on us than we need that sort of that water of inspiration to get us going again. So mm. it's very easy to come to somewhere like this and just hang out with people that you know and who are your friends. But I just really encourage you, grab people who are a bit further on or have something to teach you or are strong in an area. So if you want to develop your kids' ministry, we know who to speak to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Katie, I've just ruined the conference for you now. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I would, I would say that. Yeah. Building a network. Thank you. Really, really helpful. And, and Katie, what, what about for you? What, what's God used, you know, in growth with you? Well, perhaps the biggest growth curve of my life has come about through learning to lead as a single mum. And when I joined our church staff, I was married, but things became incredibly difficult to the point where my husband completely walked away from God. And then because I loved God and couldn't compromise on that, he walked away from me. And I was so broken and in so much pain, I thought I would never lead again. And I thought that as someone who would be divorced, that I was completely disqualified from ever serving in a church, let alone being on a church staff. And I actually went and tried to resign from our church staff, but Andy and Harmony wouldn't let me. And <laughs> I remember Andy telling me that do you know, I just went to him and I said, like, I'm going to, I need to resign because I just really love our church and I just don't want to hurt it. And I remember Andy looking me in the face and just saying that um, if I didn't want to hurt our church, then I should stay and I should model out what it actually means to run hard after Jesus in a crisis. And at that point, Andy saw something in me that I definitely did not see in myself. And he's since told me even a couple of weeks ago that at that point, God showed him and spoke to him specifically about that and about keeping me on staff. 
And throughout that time, it was a massive journey. Um, my daughter was two at the time. And God promised me really clearly that he would be the husband and the father in our house if I would let him. And I think that's been the key thing, that the me letting him be those things. And many of you have heard this story, but early days, one night, Neve, my daughter, was really, really ill. And she had really severe conjunctivitis, and her eyes were just completely stuck together. And she was screaming in the middle of the night because she couldn't open her eyes and um, was just really distressed. And I had tried everything, bathing them with cotton wool and um, just trying to work out what to do and soothe her. And I just remember suddenly um, that God had said he'd be the husband and the father. And it got, I wouldn't recommend this, but I got kind of quite irate. <laughs> and I just remember shouting at God, you promised you would be the husband and the father in our house. And right now, one of the two of us can do something about this. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> in that instant... Nay's eyes were completely healed and there was just nothing, no sign of infection at all on her wee face and I think that was the key that he'd promised that but until that point I hadn't actually let him be the husband and the father um, and it was a really, really significant night in our house and as I've let him be the husband and the father in our home, dependency on him has shaped my identity and it's probably been the biggest catalyst for personal growth and in how I lead others and while I would never want to go through any of that again, I am so filled with faith when I just realise that what Satan intended for harm has actually been used by God for good. And whenever I started understanding that actually there is nothing that can thwart God's plans for my life, nothing at all, I have been so filled with confidence. And actually, it's worked itself out as an ability to take probably more risks than I previously could have taken in life. Because in my head, I think that was the worst thing that could possibly happen. And actually, it happened. And God and I have gotten through it. And I feel like life's still hard sometimes um, in many ways. Um, but yet, I just know that there is nothing that I can't get through with God. And for a while, I just couldn't fathom that God would want to, that he could or would even want to use a woman with my story. And I've just been in this great journey of learning that God can use anyone who says yes to him at every turn. And I just remember, you know, nights where I just said to him, God, I am so brokenhearted. And just hearing him say, you know, I came for the brokenhearted. I came for people just like you. And, um, you know, he's just so especially good at using and restoring broken things. Mm -hmm. And so simply saying yes, irrespective of how I feel in a given moment, because God has all the resources that I need, and he is good all of the time. And, you know, 10 years ago, I told you I thought God called me to, that it was to change the face of kids' ministry in Ireland, UK, and beyond. And I actually felt that then, as soon as he called me to that, my life went in this downward spiral. And I just thought, oh, it's too late. He'll use someone else. Do you know, I've, I've missed my chance. In fact, Wes, who's on our staff, he had had a word the other week about someone who felt that they'd sold their birthright for a bowl of soup. And that actually sums up exactly how I felt in that moment, that I just messed up, stuffed up my chances. Um, and, you know, in November past, I was in my room one night, and I had this really powerful encounter with God. I just um, felt the Holy Spirit fall on me. And, you know, one of those significant nights where you maybe don't have very many of them in your lifetime, but it's really an important time with God. And, do you know, he called me to the exact same thing. I just felt him say, you're called to change the face of kids' ministry in Ireland, UK, and beyond, 10 years on. And, do you know... He didn't forget. 
He didn't forget what he called me to. He always knew this is what would happen with my life. And he planned for it. He's been with me the whole time. And then he took the time to call me again to that exact same thing because Mm -hmm. he is so gracious and so full of mercy and so very good at using broken things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we're, we're just about out of time. We'd, we'd love to, to pray. But, Helen, can I just ask you, you finally, um, do you know, if, if there was one thing, do you know, you wanted to say um, to, to leaders, um, do you know, final word, what would it be? I think, for me, it's really important that we stay focused on why we do what we do. It's so easy to get bogged down the day-to-day, the trouble, the difficulty. And it's just having that bigger view. This is kingdom business. We're partnering mm. with God. And, uh, and to stay focused on that and to stay passionate because that is so contagious for everybody around us. Mm. Thank you so much.